Matthew chapter 16, and I'm going to start in verse 13 this morning. It says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, But thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. As we begin this passage, just considering the, uh, the setting again, and this appears to be a private setting, not, not the public multitude <laughs> that is typically around when Jesus is doing a lot of his teaching. This is him talking privately with his disciples. And he asks them a question. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Isn't it funny that Jesus asks this question? How many times have we been going through passages where it says that Jesus knew their thoughts and he answered people according to what they were simply thinking? And yet Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? I'm sure Jesus knows exactly what people say about him. But he asks anyway. And he wants to hear from the disciples. When he's saying this, He's looking at, he calls himself the Son of Man. Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? It's funny that he uses that term to ask the question. If we look at Luke chapter 1, verse 35, as... Mary is being told what's about to happen to her, that she's going to have this child. Luke 1 verse 35 says, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest 
shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Jesus has full rights to call himself the Son of God at this point. He knows who he is, and yet at this moment he humbles himself before his disciples and he calls himself the Son of Man and puts it in their, you know, puts the ball in their park and lets them do with that whatever they want. This term, Son of Man, wasn't something that Jesus just came up with on his own either. Um, Daniel chapter 7, we see in Daniel's visions, verse 13 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And so we see these prophetic dreams there's instances in the Old Testament where this prophecy of Christ calls him the Son of Man. And so it's not this, is, this isn't unique to Jesus saying this about himself, but it is interesting that he does say it about himself. In Ezekiel, in the opening chapter of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is standing there and he begins to see visions from heaven. And every time that Ezekiel is referred to by the angel of the Lord in these visions, an example would be um, verse 28 in chapter 1 says, As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice of one that spake. And he said unto me, Son of man, stand upon thy feet, and I will speak unto thee. And he's referred to, Ezekiel is being referred to as Son of Man. And it's almost the implication, this is to keep him humble. As he's seeing this fantastic magnificent vision of the Lord he's referred to as son of man he's not being lifted up into this elevated position just because of be being a prophet and seeing these things and so this is a, a humbling thing and it is put on him by God he is called that by God but not so with Jesus Jesus deserved to be called Son of God, and yet he calls himself the Son of Man, and he chooses that humble position. I've looked at Philippians 2 many times, referring to Jesus and his attitude towards himself, the way he presents himself in humility. But in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, he says, Who to Christ, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form 
of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. But he humbled himself. He took the form of a man and he accepted that and he called himself the Son of Man. Even though God would glorify him and lift his name above every name. But he humbled himself. So he calls himself the Son of Man, and then he asks, Who do men say that I am? If we look at John chapter 10, verse 24 says, Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. And so Jesus isn't going around telling everybody, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ that you're looking for. He's not proclaiming that, he's not exalting himself in that way. He's just going and doing the things that the Messiah came to do. And when confronted, he just says, the things that I'm doing will tell you that who I am. I don't have to say it out loud. And that's the way that he came. And so it's not like Jesus is going around trying to convince people of who he is. He's just demonstrating who he is. And so it just makes sense to ask, now who do men say that I am? What, what conclusion have people come to from seeing the works that I've been doing? Hearing the words that I've been preaching? In Luke chapter 12 verse 51 is interesting verse it says suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth I tell you nay but rather division that's why am I reading that verse here? Truth is singular. There is only one actual truth. But there are many opinions. And so when Jesus asks, who do men say that I am? This verse really stands out because a lot of people had a lot of different opinions about who Jesus was. People today have a lot of opinions about who Jesus is. 
and what it means to follow him, what it means to be a Christian. And there is only really one truth that answers these questions. And so when Jesus asks, who do men say that I am? He's looking to see if they understand what the actual truth is. If I ask you, who do you say that Jesus is? I wonder what your, what your answer would be. And I hope you have the same answer that Peter has. But first, let's take a moment to look at what some of these different answers were. Matthew 6, 16 again. Verse 14. It says, And some, some say, Thou art John the Baptist. Where do they come up with this idea that he might be John the Baptist? Well, if you remember back in chapter 14 of Matthew, when John the Baptist was killed by Herod, and then later Herod starts hearing about Jesus and all the things that he's been doing, the miracles he's performing, his guilty conscience of having killed John the Baptist, that draws him back to that, and he's reminded of who John the Baptist was and the things that he said. And he questioned if this was John the Baptist raised from the dead. And so I wonder if that went out among the people and perhaps became a popular theory of who this Jesus was, was the resurrected John the Baptist. The next he says, some Elijah. In Malachi, Back my pages here. Malachi four, verse five. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So it actually makes sense if they're looking at scripture to think that perhaps this is Elijah. Because Jesus in his ministry didn't look like the Messiah that they thought they were going to get. They thought he was coming as a conqueror. That great and dreadful day of the Lord. They're expecting something magnificent to happen. So when they think that Jesus could be Elijah, it might make sense. But they missed an important part of some of those prophecies, and they didn't understand who he was. And that John the Baptist actually had already fulfilled that prophecy ahead of time. The next one is... Jeremiah, and again, in the beginning of the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1, verse 10, 
says, See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down and to build and to plant. And he's talking to, God is talking to Jeremiah at this point, but I've set, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms. And so Jeremiah becomes a picture of the Messiah at that point. And so they're looking back to these various pictures and coming up with all these ideas of who Jesus might be. But it's funny that none of the answers are the Messiah. The people hadn't come to the conclusion that Jesus was actually the Christ, their Savior. And so though these are honorable, positive opinions of who he is, they're all wrong. None of them came to the conclusion of the actual truth. I was reading about this thought, and the note is that it is possible for men to have good thoughts of Christ and yet not the right ones. It's possible to have a high opinion of him, but not high enough. People can think good things about Jesus. People can go to church and believe that there is a God, believe that Jesus existed, and yet never receive him as their own savior, because their estimation of him is not high enough. Jesus carries on in this conversation. So after they answer who people say that he is, and they, no one comes to the right conclusion in those answers. So he asks again, who do you say that I am? And Peter, we see Peter speaking up quite often, quite abruptly. And sometimes he's not quite saying the things that he ought to say, but in this case, he says exactly the truth. He's come to the right conclusion. Simon Peter answers in verse 16, it says, He said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee. We'll just pause there for one second. Jesus doesn't stop and argue with him. Like, hold on there. I'm not. Jesus doesn't do that because he is exactly what Peter said that he is. There was no argument needed. And in fact, he affirms it when he says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed it unto thee, but my Father, God revealed that to you. That's the truth. That is the conclusion that you must come to, is that he is the Christ. The Son of the living God. He is the Savior that we need to turn to. 
And so having come to that conclusion, Jesus now carries on and he says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There's some interesting things said there. Some maybe difficult things to understand maybe based on some of what goes on in our world. Um, the Catholic Church has taken some of these things and given them a meaning that doesn't exist in the actual scripture and so we get this twisted meaning through some of those teachings and we try to figure out what this is truly saying and it's really not so complicated first who's the rock and if we look back at Isaiah chapter 28 verse 16 says therefore thus saith the Lord God Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. And this very clearly is Christ. He is the cornerstone. He is the foundation that the church is built on. Ephesians chapter 2 affirms that as well. But it gives us some additional information. Ephesians 2.20. We'll just start the, the previous verses. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, just pause for one second. He's, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. And so when he's, he's talking about them being built on the foundation, the church is built on the foundation that he's referring to here. It says, and are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. And we could look at other scriptures prophesying of Jesus being that holy temple, being the foundation of that holy temple. But here he describes the apostles and prophets are a part of that foundation. They've laid the groundwork, but it is all based on the chief cornerstone of Christ. He is the, the true foundation that the church is built on. 
And so he is that cornerstone. He is that rock of the foundation. But we don't have to completely dismiss him calling Peter a rock or being a part of the foundation that the church is built on. And when we look at history, we can see that Peter really is the foundation of the church. He founded in Acts chapter 1. He's the preacher who first preached the cross to the Jewish people and saw thousands believe that and become Christians, which wasn't really the term at the time. But they, those people believed and were saved through his preaching of Christ on the cross. And then later in Acts chapter 10, it is again Peter preaching to the Gentiles and builds a foundation of the, the Gentile church. And so in that sense of his preaching is what founded the church. He was the basis of his preaching is the basis of what began this huge movement of believers. This terminology of Jesus giving him the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And honestly, I looked at those verses and I'm like, I don't know what to say about that. I don't know exactly what that means. But I did some, some reading, some research. And the conclusion you come to when you start looking at these verses and you think through the answer to that is God instructed Peter in the truth of the gospel. As Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this truth of Jesus being the Son of God to him, but God did. And God gave him the keys. God gave him the inspiration of the gospel and the truth that needed to be preached. And he preached that truth, which is the key to heaven. The preaching of the gospel is the key, the access into the doors of heaven. And so in that sense, certainly Peter was given the keys to heaven. Peter is not standing at the door as a guard, deciding who gets to come and go. He simply did his job by preaching that gospel and giving access to people through the hearing of the preaching of Christ. And when it says, whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, really requires him to preach the true gospel, the message that God gave him through inspiration of the truth of Christ and how to receive salvation. Um, 
And it's not through our works. It's not through obeying the law. And these, these terms weren't uncommon terms to the people in that time when Jesus is speaking here. And it's just an understanding of the declaration of what is allowed or what is required and what is not allowed, things that we ought not to do, things that will not get you into heaven. And so when he preaches these things, he is either allowing or disallowing these things. And he's doing that according to the will of God, not according to his own ideas. It's not like Paul, uh, Peter got to make up his own set of rules. It's not like Peter got to walk around and, well, I don't really like you, so you don't get to go. It's not that kind of um, power given to him. It's just the power to preach the word that God gave him. And when we look at the preaching of Peter, we can look at it and realize that this is the truth of the gospel that he's preaching. When he preaches Christ crucified as the only way of salvation, we can know that that is the only way of salvation. There isn't another way. Because he's bound up every other way in his preaching. The obedience of the law is no longer an option to get me into heaven. That has been bound. That's closed. I can no longer work my way there. I can't keep the law to gain salvation. I can only put my faith in the payment of Jesus on the cross for my sin. That is what he loosed. That's the, at, the way that he preached to gain that access. And so that's my best understanding of how to explain those verses. And it doesn't put Peter in any kind of special position above the other apostles. It doesn't give him any particularly special position above any other believer. He just started that. And he didn't claim any special authority or power in or in his writing. He just remained humble through the rest of his ministry. And he just preached the word. The same as any other one of the disciples or any other preacher. He didn't get this special authority, this special set of keys to choose who gets to come and go. It is nothing but faith in Christ that decides who gets to enter into heaven. I think we'll close with that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, as we look at this passage and these things, these conversations that Christ had with his disciples, and some of the truths that are revealed as we look at those details, the way that he interacted and wanted them to answer things that he already knew, but gave them the opportunity to say 
and to explain their own thoughts and feelings, Lord, and to declare what is the truth. And he affirmed the truth when it was spoken, Lord. So help us to understand that truth, help us to proclaim that truth to the people that we interact with on a day-to-day basis, Lord. Help us not to grow cold and allow people to not hear that message in this lifetime, Lord, when we've been given the opportunity to share it. I just ask a blessing again on this time. And commit this into your hands, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.